Hey everyone, Eric here. Very quickly before we get to the show, just want to give you an update on all the new things we've got going on at CAP. We've got some new staff on board who are producing some amazing daily coverage of China-Africa issues and what's going on specifically in the Chinese discourse in China. Now, this isn't the propaganda stuff I'm talking about. Instead, what we're doing here is providing you with the translations and analysis of all the conversations that are taking place on Chinese social media, new research papers, think tank reports, and lots and lots of primary source material. This is the kind of thing that's just not available on Twitter or in mainstream news coverage. Plus, we've got a lot more Middle East, North Africa coverage now available on the site, and we'll be expanding our focus to other regions in the Global South in the months ahead. So, if you're interested in what China's doing in Africa, the Middle East, and the Global South, you'll definitely want to subscribe. We've made it super easy and really affordable at just $7 a month for students and teachers and $15 a month for everyone else. Try it out free for 30 days. See if you like it. You'll get full access to the website. You'll get the newsletter. Just go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, earlier this week, you and I had the honor to speak with uh, Wu Peng, who is the top Chinese diplomat for Sub-Saharan Africa in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And during our conversation with him, some of you may have heard the show last week about how China is perceived and the perceptions in the gap between the perceptions among civil society and those in the governing elites. I asked him about that, and he he didn't seem to kind of say there was a big difference between the two. But Kobus, you and I know very well from all the time that we've been studying this, that the way that People in just the guy on the street to the media to non-governmental organizations, the way that they perceive China is very, very different than those who are in the ruling elites and within the political system. And that was really on full display just in the past few days. So last week, there was yet another one of these awful videos that have been coming out at a frequency of maybe three to four weeks we're seeing this year so far of Chinese mining managers brutally abusing local workers. We've seen this in Sierra Leone. Then it went to the Democratic Republic of Congo, where we saw a number of these videos. Earlier, we've seen this kind of thing in Kenya. And last week, it appeared out of Rwanda's Rutsiro district. And it's really just a, you know, a horrific thing. But you'll hear in the background what it sounded like from this video. This is a Chinese manager who is whipping an employee who allegedly stole from the mine. And he was had his hands bound and tied to a pole and he's beating him with a rope. Now, to be fair, 
this Chinese manager was arrested within 24 hours of the video showing up by the Rwanda Investigation Bureau. The Chinese embassy in Kigali denounced it, and, and everybody moved very quickly. But the key thing here is that these videos, because of the frequency that they're appearing, are starting to shape public opinion in some very interesting ways. Now, at the same time, just in the same week, we see the other extreme of this. Uh, Zimbabwean President Emerson Menangagwa, he took a tour of the new international airport in Harare, the Robert Mugabe International Airport that is being built by the Chinese and financed by the Chinese. And let's take a listen to what the Zimbabwean president had to say about the Chinese. This unwavering support remains a show of confidence which the government of the People's Republic of China have in our economic development trajectory. We are not worried about those who get angry because China has helped us. So let's add on to that the drama that exploded last week, Kobus, in your neighborhood with Xiaomei Harvard, who is the ANC member of parliament accused of spying for China and doing work for the United Front Work Department. Also, there was a lot of discussion going on in the Democratic Republic of Congo about the renegotiation of contracts. And there's this sense that the mining bosses on the Chinese side, together with President Chesakedi and the ruling elites in the Democratic Republic of Congo, are kind of colluding with one another against the interests of the average guy on the street. And again, it's that sense that ruling elites and business elites are, are kind of working together. And then, of course, in Kenya, we've talked about this a number of times on the show, Kobus, how the repayment of the standard gauge railway loans that, that Kenya is now doing after the Kenyan government requested for an extension to be able to defer those payments, the China Exim Bank said no. And at the same time, Kenya is now falling behind in its operational payments. It's it's really just going broke. And there's a perception on the street, again, in places like Nairobi, where the, per, the taxpayer is bearing the burden of this. So when it comes to these public opinion questions, Kobus, we have to remember that it's not shaped on the pages of the Financial Times or Le Monde or the Daily Maverick in places like uh, you know South Africa. But in a region where the median age is 19.4 years old, social media is where all this is happening. And that's why the steady flow of these controversial videos and these controversial topics and these negative stories about the Chinese, uh, and they're appearing with some regularity, are hardening the views, I think, of a lot of teenagers across the continent. And that's something that should be a real concern for Chinese policymakers. Yeah, it's 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 really a complicated issue. Of course, you know, one of the things that we always point out is that there's so many different Chinas involved in Africa and so many Africans different kind of Africans interacting with with China and this this is a key example of that dynamic. You know, it's it's very difficult to put together a comprehensive story about China and Africa because the very act of crafting a narrative is itself a form of framing or or cherry picking different kind of different kind of data points to kind of to stitch together a story, and one can make it explicitly negative or explicitly positive, um, you know, as we've seen now. Um, and, you know, kind of when, when the reality is also is that there's a lot of different data points out there, and, and you know, kind of it's, it really is a mixed bag. Um, so it, it really becomes very challenging then to tell, to tell a story, either negative or positive, about, about China and Africa, you know, kind of because... 
like either one of those two becomes so simplistic. Um, and at the same time, you know, kind of when one when one is also then dealing with with narratives kind of taking fire on social media, that adds another several layers of of, of simplisticness on top of that. You know, kind of which which kind of also makes it very difficult. Yeah, you can see anything you want in this relationship, and and that's what again makes it so fascinating for us. But we're going to get some perspective on these perception issues, the soft power issues, narratives, what you talked about, Kobus. Let's go to Atlanta, Georgia, where we're going to be joined by Maria Repnikova, who's an assistant professor in global communications at Georgia State University in Atlanta, which is my uh, my former hometown there. And she's also the author of Media Politics in China, Im- Improvising Power Under Authoritarianism. Maria, very good morning and welcome to the program. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. It's wonderful to have you on the show. I've been a big fan of your work for many years following what you've been doing. And and I really took interest in your recent Monkey Cage column that you participated with along with Cornell University professor Jessica Chen Weiss. Uh, There was a great back and forth that you were doing with Jessica. Does China actively promote its way of governing and do other countries listen? You talked a lot about these elite trainings and that contributes to this idea that I was talking about that China has done an incredible job at fostering relationships and solid ties with the governing elites, maybe not so much with the civil society. And and you talked a little bit about in, in, in that discussion with Jessica that it's not about exporting the Chinese model and replicating that in parts of Africa, but instead it's creating a system and it's creating an environment that is much more favorable to China. Can you talk a little bit about this idea of the elite trainings, and what the Chinese are doing to foster relationships with powerful people across the continent. Sure. So this is the research I've been carrying out primarily focused on Ethiopia. It's part of my book project that's looking at Chinese soft power in Africa with an emphasis on Ethiopia case, because so many Ethiopian elites have been trained um, in China, thousands of individuals from different ministries, the the ruling party, but also um, journalists, who I spoke to extensively from different media outlets. Some of them affiliated with the state, some of them are more private, um, and of course, social media celebrities and actors you know, who are more resistant or critical don't, don't, get, don't get invited for these types of trainings. So it's mostly those who are more aligned with a view that's positive uh, of, about China and Africa that get invited to these sort of uh, meetings and trips. So I found that this, you know, the training uh, idea tends to be kind of interpreted in the West, especially in, in the U.S. and in Washington, is something that's really quite um, negative um, or anti-democratic almost. They're exporting a model, they're exporting a way of governing um, that's really authoritarian, and then the elites come back and they can become better dictators, basically. It's kind of a simplistic view of, you know, looking at how it's been framed. But in reality, a lot of these trips are about showing off China. So I talk a lot about that in my writing and in that little piece as well, uh, this idea that it's really about kind of introducing the best of China to these visitors and, you know, introducing them to the various development projects, um, you know, from rural kind of development to urban landscapes, um, but also, you know, significant kind of show of solidarity uh, and generosity. That's something that's really at the heart of these meetings. The actual content of trainings, you know, the actual kind of meat of the lectures um, is very mixed. On the one hand, China is presented as um, a legitimate kind of political system, a lot of emphasis on how it is democratic in different ways. It's consultative, it's, you know, inclusive of different opinions, their elections at village level and at the very top level as well, they frame this as electoral. Um, it's constitutional, basically it's much more meritocratic than even Western systems. So that, that's the way the Chinese political system is often presented. But then when it comes to more technical kind of lessons, they tend to be very specific and, and to my surprise, or perhaps it's not that surprising, but they often draw on Western materials, case study books, all kinds of different materials. Materials and textbooks coming from the West. 
Um, so I didn't see a very particular kind of coherent way of exporting some of the tactics that are associated with authoritarianism in China, like surveillance or um, persuasion in a very Chinese kind of way. Um, I didn't see those materials being part of these trainings as much. So it's the materials themselves kind of tell a very different story of China, but they, I think at the heart of these trainings is really showing off and seeing and experiencing China. That's, that's really been the, the, the very the very agenda of these sort of meetings. Um, could you get an idea of, 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 from the Chinese perspective, what role uh, is this training supposed to fulfill? Because, you know, as you say, you know, from, from Western perspectives, it's frequently seen as just China as a form of kind of like influence expansion or like trying, you know, kind of trying to kind of do, to kind of foster the Chinese system, you know, in other places. And you point out that, you know, that that actually does not happen. And, and frequently, you know, it, it, it frequently to the extent that they're not really particularly even focusing on how to implement particular kind of Chinese approaches to things in, in Africa. Um, so you know, so so so, what, what what do you think from a Chinese perspective they would like to achieve through all of this training? Yeah, the answer I got from interviews with Chinese um, trainers and those responsible for carrying out these sort of initiatives is that at the heart of it, it's kind of this experience of China. They describe it as Tian Zhongguo, kind of this term experience is really kind of live, lived experience of China that can then shift one's opinion about China. So kind of shifting it from a somewhat negative or perhaps suspicious perspective that's often, you know, put forward in Western news outlets and speeches to a more positive um, perspective, kind of shifting and orienting oneself towards a direction that's really more positive about China. And we see this also in the aftermath of some of these trainings, for instance, with journalists. Um, there's a, you know, nine or I think a 10-month fellowship that um, some selective journalists come, come to Beijing for. And they don't, they're not required to write stories about China, but they're really strongly encouraged to write stories about their experience, and many of them do. And those stories are overwhelmingly positive. You know, they're mostly about kind of how wonderful and interesting and inspiring uh, the experience has been. So the idea, I think, is, is very much to uh, shift perspectives, um, to have this really positive experience, and then eventually, you know, to go back and perhaps that's going to imp impact or some of their policy approaches. But, you know, it's very hard to measure that impact. I think it's with, like any sort of soft power public diplomacy exercise, even, you know, speaking to U.S. officials who carried out trainings here in America with African officials, they don't know, you know, to what extent there's really deep impact. These exercises are always so, sort of soft and, and they're quite expensive, which is why I think in Washington they're, they're not doing them as frequently. But China is investing a lot into these sort of um, soft power training exercises. It seems to be very effective because many of the academics and the journalists return from these, these trainings not just positive, but effusive. And in many ways, they become deputies for China and the Communist Party and the whole Chinese side in the Twitter wars and in the narratives and in a lot of the propaganda. So even in African media, you'll see these a lot of articles and op-eds that, and I follow this every day very closely writing about it, and I'm just always amazed by how they have really just embraced wholeheartedly the the Chinese narrative in many respects. And have you, and I'm just wondering, do you know why the motivation is for that? Why have, why have they embraced a foreign concept so enthusiastically? Yeah, I guess I, would, I wouldn't really see this as embracing a foreign concept. I kind of see this as more performing, sort of loyalty, performing partnership or friendship, because a lot of these uh, statements that are made, they're made in public, but when you interview people in private, they have much more critical views about China. So even in Ethiopia, which is, you know, has been so far, at least until recent years, very closely aligned with China, the officials who went, when they come back, they come with mixed impressions. They're very impressed and inspired, but they also have questions 
that remain unanswered about Chinese involvement in their country, about environmental impact of these projects, um, about the future of this relationship, a lot of fears. And those, of course, don't really get addressed in these trainings because they're quite controlled. Um, there's not a lot of room for asking sensitive questions. So I think it's really kind of a mixed uh, impression that they return with. They also experience, of course, social media censorship. Um, obviously, they can access certain apps. They see the society, you know, is being censored and contained. They see the media as being very controlled. So they come back with this kind of, I think, kind of a mixed, in some ways, disjointed view about what China is about. But publicly, they express, uh, for the most part, I also noticed that, you know, in my study, that very positive very positive views. Uh, part of it, I think, is maintaining these relationships and maybe hoping to get invited again. A lot of officials I spoke to want to keep going back. It's a free trip, you know, it's fun. <laughs> so some of them describe it as a picnic. So it's, it's, it's one of the only kind of ways to go abroad, essentially, for free. So it's really exciting to many people. So in a very micro scale, individual scale, it's also kind of empowering. But I think on the macro scale, perhaps some of these ideas are also enticing. You know, I, I, when I talk to the officials about the larger kind of impressions, what they took away is this hard work ethic and this, you know, immense economic accomplishment and the fact that there is a way to do this without drawing on Western models. You can do this yourself, this idea of self-reliance. Some of these ideas, even though they're kind of vague, they're also very inspirational. So I think there's really kind of a mix. There's a mix of inspiration and perhaps this, you know, motivation of self-empowerment in the future, but also there's some critique that doesn't really get expressed in official uh, channels. It was very interesting for me the, the point that you made of um, you know that that so many of the training so much of the training focuses on on this kind of narrative of self reliance, um, and with it then also not particularly focusing on on oh this is a particular Chinese thing that you know a Chinese approach or a Chinese initiative that can be replicated in in, in Africa like there was like in, in in your research I found much much less of that than I had ex expected I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and. You know, is, is, is it, am, am I right in kind of in detecting a little bit of a like solipsism almost, with, you know, kind of within within this kind of Chinese approach where they tend to only be comfortable about talking about it themselves, um, you know, and not particularly kind of po pushing, oh, you should implement X initiative in your country too. Um, you know, like, am, I, am I kind of like seeing that, am I getting that balance right? Yeah, I think the idea of self-reliance did come through quite strongly in this in these trainings, the materials I saw, the people I spoke to. Um, this idea that we're not here to push, you know, or kind of export anything. We're really here to show you that a different way is possible. And China being kind of the prime example of self-reliance. Of course, the story itself is in some ways quite, you know, interestingly crafted because as we know from Chinese modern history, um, there's been a lot of reliance and drawing on expertise and resources from other countries including Japan and the West. So this idea that somehow China accomplished everything solely by itself, of course, is a, is a particular way of presenting that, that story, right? So I, I found that to be interesting to look at the materials about how they talk about themselves. It's a kind of a skewed story. It's very linear, and it's very much like we've accomplished everything ourselves with our strength and unity of our people and amazing leadership of the party. So they're kind of presenting this, this notion, but in reality, the full story of reliance on other actors, of course, is not really being you know, shown or discussed in any detail from what I've observed. Um, but I think that part of this self-reliance is also kind of a diplomatic tactic where, you know, in, in comparison to the West, which is depicted again as kind of exporting or promoting democracy and seeing these different models coming from the West as applicable and, you know, supposed to work, right, in the African context, and yet they're failing. China is not arguing for any sort of particular model to be all fitting. They're just saying, well, we can teach you or show you that, you know, anything is possible through our example. It's about inspiration, I think, at the heart of it and about very specific ways of governing that can be applied directly. And I think that idea is quite, quite appealing to many people. And another thing that you've said previously is that they're also trying to persuade 
Africans of the legitimacy of the Chinese political system, are they trying to do that because they're coming from a point of insecurity vis-a-vis the West? That is there, and you see this in a lot of the the messaging coming out of China now is that really criticizing West, uh, you know, the U.S. and Europe, particularly the U.S. on in their values on human rights, on economic development. This has been the the long-standing battle between China and the rest of the world. Really trying to persuade people in the global South, and this many ways dates back to Zhou Enlai in the Banyong Conference that there is a third way, the legitimacy of the Chinese political system. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I think the legitimacy, the way it's presented to, to me is interesting. It's again kind of this idea that there is a third way, but at the same time, the terms they're using and legitimizing themselves are kind of Western terms. For example, the term democracy comes up very frequently uh, in these discussions and the, the kind of terms like meritocracy and consultative democracy. And they're basically trying to say that we're no worse, but even maybe better than kind of a Western democratic system. Um, we have really strong rules about, you know, tight and rules, restrictive rules about who gets promoted to power. Uh, it's meritocratic. And that way we have all kinds of institutions set up for learning about public opinion and grievances. We also have a very clear constitution that gets amended with time to reflect public grievances and opinions. So the whole kind of story about it being somehow more inclusive than it originally, maybe, or not originally, but then it, then it gets presented right, as authoritarian um, in the Western context. And a lot of officials I spoke to you know, from Ethiopia who came back, they said, well, we were some, somewhat surprised to learn about some of these participatory channels or the fact that there are some forms of elections or that there are some other parties other than the, you know, the main um, Chinese Communist Party. There are some other sort of smaller parties. But not really, though, right? Exactly. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, not it's, really. <laughs> what does democracy, because I think a lot of people are going to be confused when they hear that the Chinese use the word democracy within their political system. Can you explain what Chinese democracy looks like so that people understand that it's not the same as what the conventional say, Western, U.S., European, African context of democracy is? Sure. So I think the main distinction, the biggest one to me, is that there are no national elections, right? No, no leader gets elected through wide, you know, kind of public opinion. Um, um, or there's no, there's no electoral politics on, that, you know, on the national scale. There's village-level elections, which are very micro, and even there, some studies suggest that it's not entirely independent. There are certain officials that get promoted through the party, by the party, that gets, get more attention, they get more, um, they get more opportunities to be elected. So even at the very local level, there's still some kind of questions about how democratic that process is. But at the national level, we don't have elections in China. So that's, that's a huge difference. That's why it's you know, being conceptualized in political science as an authoritarian system. Um, at the same time, it is a complex political entity. And we have seen some of these input institutions, as they're called by some um, observers and social scientists uh, of China, that there are some ways, there are some channels for public to participate in governance. And something that I've studied for a long time about domestic Chinese politics is that there are, there are often kind of these circles or spaces for grievances to be expressed. There are many protests taking place locally. Um, there's still some critical investigative reporting taking place uh, in some context and on some issues. There's some lawyers who are braving their way to sue and to you know, bring cases on sensitive issues. So there's kind of a gray zone of issues that one can touch and expand on, but one cannot question the legitimacy of the entire kind of party state, the, the actual political system, or to hold elections, you know, national elections, and just remove the party from governing. So any kind of sort of democracy is done within the party. It's basically something that happens within that existing political system, sometimes on the very boundaries, on the very contours of what's permissible. So it's a very different idea, right, of democracy than what, you know, we're used to thinking about in Western sense and perhaps what many African elites are also thinking about in their context. So, you know, some of your work also deals with with messaging, public diplomacy and and, and, and so on. So this week, this week in South Africa, um, on Monday, the, the Chinese ambassador 
appeared on national TV in, in South Africa as a, you know in, in a news conference, and then went when basically went on um, you know to 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 almost dedicate almost the entire news conference to discussions of of uh, you know the, the the Chinese government's kind of narrative on the origin of COVID nineteen, which is that it it emerged from uh, from a U.S. bioweapons um, facility in Fort Detrick. Um, so he really went on like almost like half an hour, like basically talking talking like you know kind of discussing this issue in detail. So I was wondering what you make of this particular aspect of contemporary Chinese messaging in relation to the origin of COVID-19 and particularly also the pushing of the kind of four-detric narrative now also in the global south. Yeah, the COVID-19 messaging has been really interesting to observe from beginning to, I guess, today. Um, at the start, the messaging being more kind of about China dealing with this, with this virus and then helping other countries deal with it. And now it's more about where is it actually coming from and in some ways, in many ways, blaming the U.S. or just kind of dismissing any sort of blame from the U.S. and arguing the opposite. So I think we're seeing an emergence of what one could, I guess, describe as disinformation tactics, where it's not just about kind of defending or explaining your story, but it's about, you know, talking about uh, the story of your, in this case, not the enemy, but the key contestant, the United States, uh, in a negative way or trying to kind of frame them as responsible. So I think the, the, this communication has shifted in many ways. It reflects also the wolf warrior diplomacy tactics that we have observed in recent years, where the target is not only the West, but also you know, the global South. There are much more kind of aggressive and confident techniques that often involve the US. It's not just about China, but it's about kind of depicting, again, your contestant um, in, a, in a more negative way and, and thereby you know, emerging maybe as a winner or as a more powerful party. So it's, it's a different kind of technique than what has been practiced before, which I saw is more constructive. It's kind of all about China, Chinese story, very subtle, not so critical of the US. But I think really under Trump, it has really shifted and it's continuing to evolve in that direction. Yeah, because it's in Africa, at least, it is really remarkable to see how much of, say, the official Twitter accounts are dominated by anti-US messaging. And, and it's interesting because on the US side, they don't use their Twitter accounts that way to go after the Chinese. The other, they have many other ways of attacking the Chinese, but they say a, a U.S. diplomat in Africa is not talking about COVID origin dilemmas and things like that. So there's a real discrepancy on that. And I guess it's just interesting to think about how does Africa fit within the broader narrative that China's trying to put out into the world in terms of its soft power and, and its, its messaging. How, do, how does Africa fit into that bigger picture? Yeah, it's a really interesting question that I'm still reckoning with in my research, because on the one hand, when you talk to, you know, public relations, soft power kind of specialists in China about who or which countries are the key targets of Chinese global soft power campaigns, Africa or, you know, as a region doesn't come up first on top. It comes up, you know, when we talk about the targets, the key target is the United States, you know, some key countries in Western Europe, Russia, the neighboring countries, and then global South Africa comes after. So it's, it's interesting how on the one hand we emphasize so much of kind of Sino-African relations, of course, we're interested in that. But then when you look at kind of the global picture, it's often, you know, other uh, contexts that come up first. But at the same time, I think um, Africa plays a very important role at also legitimizing Chinese um, rhetoric and discourse globally. So it's not just about convincing those elites or the public that, you know, this particular official spoke at, spoke to about the COVID origins, it's not just about convincing them, but about the fact that if they get convinced or if they believe the story, it may legitimize China globally. It may promote an anti-US narrative, um, you know, at a much larger scale. So I think that's also part of the story. It's about convincing and conveying kind of a certain message 
beyond China to publics that perhaps are easier to target, that are much more already aligned towards China, these are the elite levels you mentioned at the beginning, maybe not so much at the popular level, um, the public level. So we see this kind of elite targeting, and then, but they will tell the stories through maybe their own messaging channels, um, or they will share them on social media, or they will write about them in official media, and maybe even international media, some of them may speak out about these issues. And we see that you know, the support for China and Chinese uh, kind of discourse power, not just on COVID, but on other issues, is really coming up also in Chinese global um, media channels. You know, CGTN, for instance, often interviews, they often interview Chinese, uh, African elites, officials, and they will really talk so um, positively, you know, kind of applauding China in Africa and dismissing and critiquing the U.S. in some of this rhetoric, which also, you know, this TV channel kind of, it, it, it broadcasts all over the world. So this rhetoric gets shown and spread to other regions. Yeah, but, but people don't really watch CGTN, though. All the data that we've seen out of Africa is that it's barely watched. In the United States, it's the same. They're on almost every cable network in the United States, like Channel 624. There, there's no ratings data. They don't invest in marketing, for example. So I wonder, I guess my question is, they're doing all of this stuff, but is it effective? Yeah, that's always the million dollar question. Does it actually work, right? Is it, is it really effective? I think the effectiveness, first of all, it's very hard to measure, but I guess it depends which, which aspect you know, we're really thinking about. If it's about people watching and engaging with this media, if we're talking about media specifically, then I don't think it's you know, quite as effective as they would like it to be. And even you know, in China, in academic circles and policy circles, there's a lot of discussion about making Chinese soft power more effective. There's this idea that it, they're not doing enough or it's not effective enough or they don't know their audience well enough. So I think that's still very much kind of a question and it's seen as a process as opposed to something they've accomplished already. So is it really effective at getting people to watch this, this information, these channels? Um, from what I've seen from the existing studies, it doesn't seem to be um, as popular as, as other outlets um, still. I think Russia Today globally is still actually doing better than CGTN, which is interesting. So, you know, on the media scale, perhaps less effective, but I think when it comes to, say, elite trainings, it's, it's quite effective, as we talked about, in building these bonds, or at least in getting these elites to talk positively about China publicly. So it really depends, I think, which channel we pick of soft power, which kind of dimension, and who they're targeting. If it's just elites, it's one thing, but if it's about broader public, it's a very different question and a very different conclusion. You wrote a really fascinating article about Confucius Institutes in Ethiopia, um, and we've seen in, in the Global North, we've seen this this you know, increasing kind of resistance against Confucius Institutes and, a, a, you know, a, a lot of suspicions raised about them as, you know, as, as having, as, as essentially being these kind of like, you know, it's difficult to find the right word, but kind of ideological messaging kind of outlets um, trying to kind of promote China in, in the global north. And then with it, there they came a lot of uh, almost this kind of moral panic around around this kind of influence of China on, on, on campuses. In the Ethiopian context, it was really interesting to read. Like, there's a lot of really interesting details. Um, and, and, and you... you identify the kind of attraction to Ethiopian students as as pragmatic um, enticement. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what, what you mean with pragmatic enticement and how, how the kind of your experience in looking at Confucius Institutes in Ethiopia and in the Global South differed from the way that they perceived in the Global North. Yeah, so in this article, I talk about this pragmatic enticement as the attraction of practical benefits, um, you know, that Confucius Institutes offer uh, to students, but also to university administrators. So it's not only students, but this idea that, uh, you know, the heart of it, it's really about jobs and employment, that once you graduate from a Confucius Institute and perhaps study abroad to improve your language skills, um, there are opportunities to work as a translator slash facilitator at Chinese enterprises and companies that pay two to three times higher wages than that of a professor, for instance, at the same 
same university where they studied. So it's really, you know, the kind of astounding, the different differential in, in pay. And as a result, actually, ironically, many of these graduates don't want to become Chinese language teachers. So in some ways, it's kind of, you know, slightly hurting the mission of Confucius Institutes to localize, you know, their, um, their kind of centers to actually hire local teachers because many of these graduates don't want to become local teachers. They want to work uh, where they can make more money. So they work for Chinese companies. So at the heart of it, is, at the heart of this enticement is really jobs. But in addition to that, it's also, you know, education, opportunities for scholarships, uh, for study abroad, for, you know, summer camps, for coming for a PhD program. So all sorts of ways to, you know, in some ways even just escape and see the world. That's something that Confucius Institutes are empowering in. And there's a very strategic calculus on behalf of the deans that I spoke to who are kind of co-administrating this uh, Confucius Institutes. Um, that when they talk about why they're, you know, engaging with them, it's really very much about employment of their graduates. And they note that once these jobs shrink or if they shrink, they will shut down the institutes. So it's also really interesting, kind of it's so pragmatic that, you know, you wonder to what extent is there a deeper kind of cultural influence there or is it mostly just about calculated interests? And as such, you know, is this really kind of fully soft power, right? That's something that I conclude the article with. But also the teachers from China who come, you know, the volunteers especially, they're also driven more by personal kind of empowerment. For instance, they get some bonuses for being based in Ethiopia, some extra salary kind of money. But they also get a year off or two years off to basically take a break from very hectic, very stressful, very competitive life in China. So many of them come for very personal reasons, uh, but also to practice English, to get experience teaching Chinese, and then they go back and get other jobs, but very few expressed a deep interest in Ethiopia or in Africa. You know, many of them said we would go elsewhere if there was an opportunity. It was, very, again, very kind of practical choice, um, not so much of an emotional or some kind of a deep curiosity around the specific country they're being sent to. The concern about Confucius Institutes in some Asian countries, in the U.S., and in many European countries is that they are always affiliated with universities and will extend their influence beyond just teaching Mandarin to also help influence, and this is the concern, to help guide the conversations on sensitive issues like Xinjiang or Taiwan or Tibet or any of these other issues. And that's why a lot of universities have said, you know what, we're going to push them away. We don't want to do anything with them. That's not the case in Africa, where Confucius Institutes have been extraordinarily popular and they're opening new ones. Why do you think that is, that, that discrepancy in how universities view the relationship with the Confucius Institutes? Is it also because there isn't a large Chinese studies program in many of these African universities? So the questions about doing research on sensitive issues regarding China is not as pronounced and it's much more vocational in that respect. Help us understand why, you, I mean, as someone who's in the United States, you spend a lot of time in Europe and you also see what's going on in Africa, how the different perceptions of Confucius Institutes play out? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, there are several factors I think we can kind of think about as to why the picture is so different. I mean, first of all, just to kind of a, to qualify this distinction, there are some studies I think I read about Kenya and South Africa that suggest that there is at least some concern about ideological influence uh, by university um, you know, professors and officials um, in some of these uh, institutes where, you know, where CIs are based, there's a little bit some concern about ideological influence, but it hasn't reached the, the, the kind of the level of the concern to shut them down or, you know, not nearly the level that's present in the U.S. or Europe. But in Ethiopia, I haven't even seen much of that concern, you know, rising up. Nobody really mentioned kind of a frustration or even curiosity about this kind of sensitive issues or brainwashing or ideological infiltration, um, that wasn't, didn't really come up in the conversations. I think part of it, as, as you pointed out, there isn't research that's done independently about China. There's no China center in Ethiopia. Any kind of information that comes 
up about China really comes from Confucius Institute. So we don't really see an independent kind of body of scholarship or a center that would challenge this or worry about this. You know, we don't really quite see that happening uh, or the need even for having those centers. We don't yet see the kind of the desire to build a China center there. It seems that unless that it's, it's associated with jobs, that's not really of interest to university officials. Um, and I think also, again, going back to pragmatic benefits, the benefits or the kind of the gains of studying Chinese are much more pronounced, I think, in the case of, say, Ethiopia than they are for students, say, in Atlanta, for instance. You know, here in the U.S. also, you know, if students are motivated by getting jobs and Chinese is not just some kind of a passion for many students. But you don't immediately think of this as, oh, I'm going to get a three times higher wage, you know, working at this, you know, the company versus all my other job possibilities. So I think the kind of the benefits are much more pronounced. They're very real. Um, and as such, I think that's, that's where the concern really lies is that how can we employ more students with decent jobs, with decent pay? How can we get them, you know, to where they need to be? And that's really at the heart of the kind of the interest in Confucius Institutes. But that said, I think there's still some, I think some fears, you know, at least on university campuses about, you know, why are they teaching their culture and their language here? Is this something that's good for us? Like, the, you know, again, in private, some of the same officials who kind of allow these institutes to be there, they also express some fears, some concerns about China and about Chinese culture at large, but not so much about political ideology. So, you know, to me, I think those different factors kind of add up to explain why, you know, the concerns are not as, not, not really there, and not as, not as pronounced um, in Ethiopia or in Africa. Um, I was wondering if, if you got any kind of, uh, any kind of indication of, of, of how much actual ideological information actually enters into the curriculum in, 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 in some of these Confucius Institutes. So just, you know, just for background, I attended some Confucius Institute in Mandarin and other classes um, when I was a, a postdoc at Stellenbosch University, which has a, a Confucius Institute. Um, and, you know, so because I was already very interested in Chinese messaging, I was really kind of looking out for it. And, and, and but, but, you know, there was never a moment where they're like, okay, let's talk about the South China Sea. You know, it was always about like the history of dumplings, you know, that, that kind of thing. It's like, like, or like, like marriage in China, you know, kind of from the Tang Dynasty to now, or like, you know, the, the, those, those kind of like, like quite kind of soft kind of cultural issues and, and not anything particularly ideological. Is that, was that your experience as, as well? Yeah, that was also my experience and the experience of students I spoke to and the deans, you know, who facilitate these programs. Uh, very much a focus on soft, like you said, historic, cultural, traditional culture in particular sides. And I also attended a very interesting event. Um, it was actually based at the uh, part of the UN kind of Ch Chinese language day. Uh, it was based in Addis Ababa and it was hosted by the Confucius Institute uh, director at Addis Ababa University. And again, her focus even there was, you know, very much apolitical. It was all about culture, in some ways kind of almost a caricature of Chinese traditional culture kind of, you know, self-orientalizing kind of tropes, uh, but not so much, you know, almost nothing really um, kind of political, not, no references to, uh, you know, much of Chinese politics or Xi Jinping or United States or competition or so it's really keeping it very subtle. And I think this is actually something that's been found in studies of Confucius Institutes in, uh, in the U.S. as well. Um, there's a book about them written by Huber that's really interesting. I can recommend later um, on social media as well. So in this book, they also find that the kind of the form of so-called censorship is often about not discussing or not opening up spaces for discussing sensitive issues. So they would just avoid, for instance, Tibet altogether, avoid Xinjiang altogether, as opposed to telling a story about kind of the Chinese perspective, just avoid talking about it. But of course, in the U.S., you know, students are so suspicious about this. They're kind of already seeing this as control. Like, why aren't they talking about them? They should be talking about these issues. You know, they're very topical issues for us. Why aren't we discussing them? But because there isn't as much awareness of these issues in Ethiopia to begin with, students weren't raising those questions. They weren't asking, what about Tibet? What about this? You know, they didn't raise those kind of sensitive questions 
in, in their classrooms or with their teachers. So the conversation, I think, stayed very much at the cultural level. Um, it's all about language and about practical opportunities and networks that these CIs help students build, including actually hosting interviews with company employees right in the in Confucius Institute kind of centers. So they would really kind of almost serve as job interview sites, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, so just just to just finally, um, you in, just to return briefly to, to Ethiopia, um, in, in your in your article on Ethiopia, you make the point that that it's actually becoming harder and harder to get to get teachers for Confucius Confucius Institutes, um, particularly also as as the security situation in, in Ethiopia is you know declines. Um, so I was wondering how you see Confucius Institutes, particularly in the global south and particularly in Africa, kind of developing over the next while. Do do you, do you foresee a kind of a, a burgeoning of the Confucius Institute kind of phenomenon in Africa, or or is there a kind of a ceiling beyond which you don't foresee it growing? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think you know one thing to keep in mind is that the um, there's been a shift in governance structure over Confucius Institutes. We've shifted, or they've shifted from Hanban, which was part of the Ministry of Education to a foundation, which is sort of this very loose body, which consists of many different organizations. And it's trying to work towards making CIs uh, much more localized and to involve or engage more funding from local partners. So it's not just about Chinese money, but it's kind of, let's make this very much a collaborative, it's already a collaborative enterprise, but even more collaborative. Uh, but the language is very vague so far, so it's really not clear you know, is there enough funding? Is there going to be more funding because there are more, you know, companies involved in this foundation and giving money? Or is it going to be more constrained because it's no longer directly part of the government? Um, everything I could find online is just it's, it's a lot of kind of bits and pieces, but it's really not clear what the direction, what the future really looks like. Um, and still, you know, up until now, the largest, the highest number of CIs was in the US and in the West, but, you know, still very few, actually, Confucius Institutes um, in Africa in comparison. So I think on the one hand, there's this understanding on the Chinese side, at least from officials I spoke to at former Hanban, you know, who used to manage actually Africa, they talked about how the most dynamic Confucius Institutes are based in Africa. Like Africa is the most exciting region for Confucius Institutes for all the reasons we just talked about. But at the same time, uh, they're, they're, it's not the region that has the most of them. It seems like most resources, just like with global soft power orientation at large, is that still directed towards the West. So I think it's kind of unclear to what extent they're going to redirect and shift because of all the closures of CIs, you know, in the West, and maybe they'll make Africa a more central point or more central context, but if there's no explicit announcement about that yet, and I think the shortages of teachers, the continuing shortages, because many teachers, volunteers, don't want to go to Africa. That's just the reality of, you know, their limited understanding of Africa, they're afraid, you know, their parents don't want them to go, so there's not, like, there's a huge demand from the teacher's side. So they're having a hard time filling those spaces. Um, even before the conflict in Ethiopia, there were some CIs, CCs, you know, Confucius classrooms that I visited that really were, like, lacking teachers. Um, they had, you know, some teachers that were really overworked and, you know, working very hard, they just didn't have enough people. So I think that's, that's also another thing to consider, that even if they do expand, are they going to be able to get more teachers to go there and to change their narrative about Africa, which means changing how Chinese media reports about Africa as well, which is a whole other subject that I hope we can discuss another time. Very quickly before we go, because we want to let you get on with your day, uh, I want to take advantage of the fact that you spent uh, a lot of time this past year in Washington, D.C. You finished up a program at the Wilson Center, and we'd love to get your take on the China-Africa discussion that's going on in Washington within policy circles, but also in the think tank community as well. Tell us a little bit about your impressions of what people are thinking about inside the Beltway. Sure. So although this year was all digital, so I didn't get a chance to speak to as many people, but I've been to various events where China-Africa 
relations come up. Um, and I think several takeaways for me. I mean, the first is just this quite significant concern, you know, with this uh, with this relationship. And in some ways, to me, I find it a little bit not puzzling, but interesting, I guess, that the concern is so much higher or more astute about China-Africa relations than, say, Chinese presence in the Caribbean or in Latin America or anywhere else in the world. It seems like China-Africa relations... And why do you think that is? Well, that's something that I'm still trying to unpack because people don't really say directly why that's the, the, they're more concerned about Africa. But I think part of it, from reading you know, also American kind of official testimonies and so forth, it seems like the language that they're using is almost that if we lose our influence in Africa, we almost lose our influence globally. It's almost like this is the space where the competition is most astute. And if we are not there, we'll lose that really important space, then we're basically losing out um, in the world. It's kind of like a s- symbolic you know, loss, but also a real loss. They talk a lot about Africa as a market. It's an, it's an opportunity of, you know, it's a continent full of young people, innovative ideas. There's so much happening there. And China is taking advantage of it, but not the United States. So there is that kind of language that's often used, kind of this very market-oriented neoliberal language about we're not there, we're not taking advantage, we're not taking the biggest slice of the market, but China is there to take that slice. <laughs> so that's something that also comes up in these um, discussions, you know, indirectly. Um, but we also see kind of this talk of competition, which I think is still, you know, I don't really see very productive language used about this competition. A lot of it is still about competing kind of on the same plateau, like we should build more infrastructure, we should offer the same things, or, you know, we should be there. But, you know, how do you compete um, on a scale of China, especially on infrastructure, to me is, is not clear. And I don't think they really have very clear answers either. So that, that's something that, you know, comes up as an idea, as a suggestion, but I don't see how it could be implemented. Um, oftentimes, or at least at the end of these conversations, sometimes education comes up that we should be investing more, or inviting more students, or setting up more of these, maybe not trainings, but opportunities for scholarships to bring young people here. Um, I think that's a very productive idea, but oftentimes it gets kind of shuffled to the very end of discussion, and often, you know, the idea of money or resources or something is just, we don't have enough to kind of open up as many of those opportunities, and it's frustrating, but that's kind of where we are right now. So interesting, I think, conversation in some ways, um, a lot of concern, a lot of passion, um, a lot of you know, ideological language about China kind of winning the world or becoming this global power or being a coercive ideological power as being manifested in the African context from the U.S. perspective, but at the same time, what to do about it, how to actually compete effectively. Um, a lot of this conversation, I think, is not, is not really that constructive, or at least it's, sometimes it's almost not realistic. That, that's the way I've observed it. The Washington Post column is, does China actively promote its way of governing? And do other countries listen? It's a Q&A between Professor Jessica Chen Weiss from Cornell University and Maria Repnikova, an assistant professor in global communications at Georgia State University in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, also the author of Media Politics in China, Improvising Power, under authoritarianism. Maria, thank you so much for taking some time out of your morning to join us. It's been long overdue for you to have you on the show, and we can't wait to have you back again. If people want to follow what you're reading and writing, I know you're very active on Twitter. What is your handle that they can look up? So my handle is very simple. It's just my first name, Maria, and then my last name, Repnikova. So it's Maria Repnikova, and that's, that's where you can find me. Okay, we'll put links to Maria's Twitter handle in the show notes, as well as to some of her articles that she's been doing. She is a fantastic resource to follow if you're interested in these topics. Uh, We didn't even get to some of the issues about the Soviet Union comparing Soviet and Chinese trainings and education programs, so a lot more to discuss again in the future. So we look forward to having you back again soon. Thank you so much. It was wonderful to speak to you. That question we talked about with Maria regarding the effectiveness of the messaging in one ways, it's very, very effective because I think we've talked about over the years how this training agenda that they have is so good. And and Lena Ben Abdallah, 
at Wake Forest University, who we've had on the show, wrote a whole book about it, how really effective it is. I mean, again, you heard Emerson Menengagwa from Zimbabwe. He, he, he himself in the 1960s went to China to train. His vice president, Constantino Chiwenga, trained in China. And so there's these, these relationships date back decades in many respects. And so in some ways, that elite training, I think, is incredibly effective. And I've seen it as well in the academic and the journalism space. So I think they're in the public opinion side of things, I don't think they're as effective because their media channels are not well, well watched or well consumed or widely consumed. However, the one part of this that people don't pay a lot of attention to is the content sharing agreements that agencies like Xinhua have. And I see it popping up all over African media where, and sometimes it is branded Chinese state propaganda or branded Xinhua, China Daily. Other times it's used like an agency like AP and Reuters where a local journalist will simply change a few words, rewrite it, and then put their name on it. But it is lock and stock. It is Chinese content. And other times it just doesn't have anything on it. We don't know where the content came from. But you can smell it if you have been around Chinese state media long enough. You go, oh, that is definitely Chinese state media. That kind of content, in my view, has been incredibly effective because that's the kind of material that just feeds out onto people's social media feeds. And they don't know where the source of it is. So we have to look at this in more sophisticated terms than simply Chinese propaganda on TV, radio, newspapers are boring, bad, and they don't work, when in fact, the propaganda now is getting out into so many different ways. And in that sense, their soft power messaging, I think, has been highly successful. I suppose. I mean, I, I still, I, I see your point. Um, and, 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 I, and I do agree. But I, I'm also wondering to which extent, um, you know, what, what does, even even if, if that if that kind of propaganda finds a kind of a, an audience, I, I still wonder what it's, Success, quote unquote, success, kind of would 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 look like, you know, kind of like how how that would actually manifest. You know, are, are we are we foreseeing like like Chinese, like African teenagers talking about you know a, a community of common destiny? No, no, no. It's much more subtler than that. It's much more subtler than that. It's again legitimizing, as she talked about, it's legitimizing the Chinese political orthodoxy and the Chinese political system and Chinese norms. It's, and it's something that you don't even know. It's like good marketing. You don't even know it's working on you. You don't know that you bought that Toyota car because of the billboard that you saw or the radio ad or was it the banner ad or was it the paid content marketing or was it the event that you went to that was sponsored by Toyota? Well, I don't know, but I end up finding myself in a Toyota dealership. So the idea that Taiwan or Xinjiang or the South China Sea or any of the core issues or COVID narrative that we're seeing right now just becomes normalized because you just see so much of it in African media. And there isn't as much of a counter narrative that's coming up because the US and Europe don't behave this way. They don't use these tactics on in terms of providing free content to websites the same way that the Chinese do. Yeah, but at the same time, I mean, you know, okay, okay, there's, there's a lot of points there. Like, um, I guess, I guess, you know, kind of, 
What 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 I'm thinking is, you know, the metaphor you use is 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 a is a market, is a free market and advertising metaphor, right? Kind of like a, a, about about Toyota, for example. Um, and the 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 um, the the implication or the, the kind of assumption that that underlies that metaphor, and I think that that is also the assumption that underlies a lot of Western perceptions of Chinese messaging in in, in Africa, is one of a kind of a free market metaphor, right? Kind of like an idea of you have all of these choices, and then you as a rational individual make a, a kind of a free market choice and then you you know and, and part of that choice might be underlay underlain by by all of this kind of subliminal messaging and like things that you don't know about yourself and like things you th- you're not realizing you're thinking and so on right so there's a, there's a lot of that kind of like like a kind of a, a kind of a yeah neoliberal advertising metaphor essentially kind of like happening there what I think that that kind of way of thinking and I think and and, and you know kind of I think that's a dominant way of thinking among also public diplomacy people in the West concerned about Chinese influence. What that doesn't take into account is the fact that that in Africa, the people encountering a lot of these messages have radically constricted choices, right? So so in that sense, um, the like Maria's work is so interesting among what others. What do you mean by, hold on, let me stop you there. What do you mean by radically constricted choices well, I'm, I'm, uh, in the media space, for example? Well, you know, kind of in the media space in terms of like what's available in the, in the media space is, is I think, more constricted in Africa frequently than people would, would assume. Really? Yeah. I mean, how, I mean, again, because the entire ecosphere of of content is available. And this is why we see social media right? kind of trends that go from Nigeria to Zambia and through Kenya, and there's hundreds of publications, countless Facebook and social media. I mean, it's hard to see that it's constricted in that respect. Well, in the first place, you know, kind of like one, like Africans frequently don't have enough, enough, like kind of bandwidth, like you know, kind of to be able to access them. That's that's one problem. Other problem is the the, the is what I've kind of joked. Uh, I think I was the only one joking. The other people weren't laughing. But you know, kind of when in 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 a in a talk with with U.S. State Department officials, I I, I I kind of characterized it as as the our content is not available in your region problem. You know, kind of which is that everything you know, kind of a, a lot a lot of in all a lot of uh, like influential media like Western media is beyond paywalls or they're not cleared for Africa um, you know the, the majority of things like HBO Max series and like those those kind of things are that kind of content Africans you know access on gray sites if they access it at all correct so that's the premium content I guess I guess maybe we weren't talking about the same terms here because what I'm talking about is the baseline standard news content social media content viral the standard things that fill most people's feeds every day not the premium Western content from HBO and the likes, but I'm thinking of leadership newspaper, the Daily Nation. Daily Nation, incidentally, is now behind a paywall. So paywalls are becoming an African thing now quite a bit. A lot of News 24 in South Africa is behind a paywall. So it's becoming more constricted, there's no doubt. But it does seem like there's a lot of editorial content that I can see because I filter through it every day and it doesn't feel constricted in that respect. And that's what I think China is kind of leaning into there. Yeah, no, you know, kind of, but but the 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 influence of editorial content on, on how is, is only, you know, kind of partially responsible for how people think about China, right? Kind of like, because, because like, like it is a kind of this kind of like, amalgamation of, of different frequently conflicting images you know kind of woven together into into an image in, in one's mind but like the, the the point that I think that that Maria's work makes 
is that like for example if if you look at if you look at both uh, like her, her research on on official training and her research on on students studying at the Confucius Institute for both of those groups the incentive of being able to go to China is is a really important part of of this of 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 this work and for them it's not really about the attraction of China which again is the way that it's framed in western discussions but it's also about the reality that they can't go anywhere else so like as one as, as one person like one official in, in in one of our articles says well it's better to go to china than to go nowhere right and that is the reality that we're talking about that is the the, the and that is the reality that is willfully framed out of these kind of western discussions about chinese in, in chinese influence in africa is that africans are essentially locked onto their continent and they can't go anywhere they don't have access frequently to to be able to simply you know travel or study or someone overseas except to go to china so the idea of like oh china is so successful in its public in its public messaging that look now they're only going to china and they're refusing to study at what oxford university you know is 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 that is that that kind of blindness to the, cons- the how how incredibly constrained african life is in relation to access to the outside world and that is still true i think even for access to media because the relay, the the you know frequently the kind of way that that kind of media influence is is, is covered is like oh they're watching american media so therefore you know kind of they're they're amenable to american ideas without taking into account that the american media that they watch is uh, like an an episode of like two and a half men that you know that they they public broadcast managed to buy because it's it's 14 years old you know that that is you know that that kind of the, the kind of constraint and and like kind of media, like kind of lack of access to anything lack of access to be able to move lack of access to watch what you want that is always framed out of this discussion right but it's that that but that that very lack of access is one of the reasons why people engage with chinese stuff in the first place it's because it's the only thing that's there I think you know that's that that yeah that's the, just a basic point that I think is really important to take into account. And I think the junkets are also effective because of the development narrative. When you land in Beijing or Shanghai or Changsha or Tianjin, all the places that the African junkets go to, and you hear that 30, 40 years ago, in the lifetimes of many of these older governing elites that China was as poor or poorer than most of the countries that they come from. And you see what China is today. And if, if for those of you who haven't been to China, it takes your breath away when you are on the maglev train going into Shanghai and you see just the, the, you know, just the scale of everything that it is. And that story, I think, is incredibly powerful in an African context, that we did it so you can do it, and we're going to help you do it. But there, so I think people get super also, energized coming back to see that narrative. But there also lies the complication, right? Because because as as um, as Maria pointed out, is that frequently the the we're going to show you how to do it, or like we we're going to help you to do it. That part of it is a lot vaguer than simply than simply the this kind of like reiterating again, like look how amazing, like look what China achieved, right? So frequently the and and, and I've, I've experienced this in 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 conversations with African officials as well is this, you know people who come back from from those kind of trips end up kind of being a little bit stuck in like a world of like rhetorical questions you know because it's it's, it's like it's like oh why like like why can't we achieve achieve what China achieved like or like you know kind of maybe if we just work together like like you know why you know the, the, this kind of development wouldn't like like why would this development be close to us. 
but the answer to that, you know, kind of gets a lot less attention than simply the 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 again repeated kind of reiteration of like, look how successful China has been, you know, because because I, I think also as as Maria shows, there's there's a lot less kind of energy put behind really suggesting particular kind of Chinese initiatives that should be taken over by by African governments, you know, beyond the thing of just like, look, this is an alternative narrative. You know, so that is a very interesting kind of like like limit to me for me, like that 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 I haven't one hundred percent kind of worked out in my own mind either. I get the sense that you and I, throughout this whole conversation, will be trying to work through this because it's hard and it's changing really fast too. As the media platforms change, as the tensions with the U.S. evolve, as China's narrative in Africa change, it it it's so a what you thought six months ago and where you are today can be very different. This is one of those very fast-changing stories. It's hard to kind of get your head around. So I think if you've been hearing Kobus and I struggle to kind of get through this and maybe not sound entirely consistent in everything we're saying, that's because we're actually working through it ourselves. Let's leave the conversation there. I hate to have shows that go past an hour. Uh, I want to take, you know, respect everybody's time. But uh, we we will have this conversation again. We want to have Maria back on the show again. She's just up. Uh, just a rocket of, of information, and it's really exciting to, to finally connected with her on that. If you would like to follow these issues and scholars like Maria, like Maria and what she's doing, if you'd like to follow issues like the what's her name? Maria, right? Is that her name? Okay. If you'd like to follow issues like this and what Maria's writing and scholars like her are doing, Follow what we're doing at the China Africa Project. We're covering this every single day in minute detail from all those issues that we talked about at the top of the show with regards to the social media, the all of the, the narratives that are coming out. That is what we do in our newsletter and on our website. If you want to join the conversation, it's a subscription for just $75 a year for students and teachers and $149 for everybody else. Just go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe, and uh, we'd love to have you part of our reader community. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another episode. So until then, for Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to chinaafricaproject.com. Project.com.